Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're in Proverbs again. Um, if you have, if you attend here regularly, you know we've been working through Proverbs. We're actually halfway through. I think this sermon is the other side. So we're not treating Proverbs in any comprehensive way. It would take a lot more than a summer to do that. Um, but I do hope that it's been of profit to you as, as we have um, kind of dug in a little bit to learn how to read the Proverbs and to uh, find encouragement here and also just the truths that are manifest here that should shape our lives and, and certainly shape our church. Um, as, you're, as you're turning there, I'll just say a couple things. One, um, man, isn't it good to be together uh, in, in, as, as believers and worship the Lord? Um, I, that, uh, that last song slayed me. I just, it always does. And just to be together as believers to exalt in Christ with our voices and, and the word, it is so good and so good for us. And, you know, one of the things that the elders have been focusing on or wanting to focus our church on is uh, fellowship. And summer is such a great time for that. And I, I want to encourage you to take advantage of the good weather um, to be together outside, like things that we can do together. And one thing in particular I'll just mention, and that is every Wednesday night, we've been having a picnic in the Memorial Park at 6. And that's open to anyone, and there's no pressure to go if you're, you know, it's not one of those, there's no program. And it's kind of a, a bring-your-own-picnic kind of thing, and we just get together, put a bunch of tables together. Sometimes we play basketball or frisbee or something like that, but uh, what a nice time to just be together and to fellowship. So I want to encourage you, if you can, be a part of that, and uh, informal fellowship. Um, and also, again, in two weeks, we're going to do that baptism service and, and picnic out at the state park. And if God is... You, you know why we... You know why we baptize by immersion? Do you know that word immersion means? You know, you know why we baptize people by putting them underwater and taking them back out? We do that because it's a symbol or a picture. It's a picture of Christ dying and being raised to newness of life. And if that has happened in your heart because you're trusting in Christ, it's wholly appropriate for you to let that be known by going through the waters yourself and identifying with Christ in a public way. It's a, it's a public proclamation of your faith. That's what it is. And it really is like, a, like an old-fashioned altar call. You, you do that because you're telling people, my hope is in Jesus. He is my hope. He is my confidence. I have died with him. I am raised with him. And I want everyone to know that. And I want others to believe that too. So I want to invite you, if you haven't been baptized as a Christian, as a believer, um, or if you have more questions about it and would just like to talk about it, um, I'm available. You can schedule an appointment with me. Just call the church office, or I think my number's in that. Uh, you can text me. It's in that bulletin that we handed out, uh, or one of the other elders, um, and, and we'd love to talk to you about that. Okay, so today it's Proverbs 6, 12 through 19. Now, again, uh, before I read that, I'll just, one, one last little thing. The, um, we want, I want you to be able to understand the Proverbs and how to read them. And some Proverbs are harder to, to wrap your heart around and mind around than others. And I think it's really good to wrap our minds around all different kinds. And that's kind of why I chose this passage, so that we could think about this passage and the way that it ought to impact our lives in our church. So here we go, the Word of God. It says, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his fingers, 
with perverted with a perverted with perverted heart devises evil continually sowing discord therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly in a moment he will be broken beyond healing there are six things the lord hates seven that are an abomination to him haughty eyes a lying tongue hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans feet that make haste to run to evil a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers let's pray so father i pray that you would help us by your spirit to understand your word and not understand it just to know what it says, but understand it to apply it to our lives. I pray that you would shape our lives through this. Shape our church through your word. Shape me, Father, through your word. Oh, how much I need shaping. And your word is there to shape me. And I pray, Father, that you would do that work this morning in all of us. And I, I pray that, uh, that we wouldn't be resistant and I pray that we would be able to read this in light of the gospel, in, 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 in light of that, that verse that was read in the very beginning of this service. Our iniquities you hold against us no more. That we would read this in light of the cross of Christ and we would understand it that way. And, and the way that that gospel changes everything for us. So, Father, I pray that you would Help me to be clear with your word. Help me to handle it well. And I pray that your gospel would be clear to our hearts. And I pray for any who come here not believing the gospel today, maybe, maybe kind of on the fringe of Christianity, maybe trying to check it out, maybe just uh, not, uh, not ever really making it their own. I pray that you would, by, the, by a work of your grace, open eyes for your glory. So that, they, so that any like that would leave here today believing Christ, trusting in Jesus Christ alone, hopeful, with new life. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, there are things that God hates. And his hatred is not at all like the soft way that we use that word hate. God's, God's hatred is not like the way we use the word hate. Like, I hate it when someone, I text someone and they just turn around and call me. You know, we say stuff like that, right? Or, I hate it when the wind blows all night. Or, man, I really hate kale. <laughs> hate in those instances is reduced to mere preferences, with the possible exception of kale. That might go beyond preference. It might be perfectly fine. It might be morally acceptable for you to love what I hate when I use hate in that way, right? In that soft way. Not so with the hatred of God. When God hates something, it means that it is the object of his, that the object of his hatred is, is worthy of divine scorn, it's not morally okay to love what God hates or to do what God hates or to be what God hates. It's not a mere preference. It is hatred that, that comes from a perspective of perfect holiness. 
When God hates, what God hates, he does not tolerate in his presence. God will not excuse what he hates. In the end, and we're going to see that a bit in this passage, God destroys what he hates. God destroys what he hates. This is a somber proverb, friends, and I think we should perk up and listen. We want to know what God hates so that we won't do that or be that or love that. It's good for us to know what God hates. My first job in high school was working in a bakery. I, I, I worked, uh, a friend got me the job right, you know, as soon as I could work. Um, and I started right at the bottom of this bakery, you know, cleaning um, stuff. You know, I'd, I'd do all the dishes. I'd, they had these giant mixer bowls. I mean, massive mixer bowls that I had to wash out. And you couldn't move them. They're too heavy for that. So you had to, you had to go to them and bring your water and all that stuff and, and clean them right there. And so I would do it. He just, boss told me what to do. And so I did it. I brought a, a stool over and I brought like scrubbers and I brought a hose and, you know, water and all that stuff. And I start working, you know, and the boss would come by and he would do something funny. He would purse his lips like, like he didn't like what I was doing and kind of shake his head no and then keep walking. And so, you know what I did? I just scrubbed harder, you know, like I'm going to just I put more elbow grease into this thing, but he kept doing it no matter how hard I clean. And I, I, like for days, I had to do this kind of thing and I never got his look of approval. It was always a disapproval. And then one day I was on the same shift with the buddy who got me the job and he was my friend and he saw me working like this. And I, you know, again, the boss came by, pursed his lips, you know, shook his head no. And this guy was a weird boss, but you know, <laughs> he could have just told me what he didn't like. But my friend came alongside me and said, you know why the boss is unhappy? He hates it when people sit down to work. It looks lazy to him. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> well, that's good to know, right? It's good for me to know that he doesn't like that, you know, so I didn't sit down all the time to work anymore. I, it seemed fine because I think like that high, you know, sitting down seemed, but he didn't like it, right? So it was good. I was, I was thankful to my friend for telling me that. I wasn't angry at him, right? That's good to know. In a similar way, but not petty or soft like that, like a, that, that example, knowing what God hates is vital for Christians. It is vital for us to know what God hates. It's very good for us because when we know what he hates, we can run from those things, right? We, we can know, God doesn't like this. I don't want to be this. I want to run from this. And we could, we could help each other in those things, right? When we see what God hates in other believers, we can say, hey man, this is not what God likes. We can encourage one another not to be those things, not to love those things. We want to love what God loves and hate what God hates. So it's good to know what God hates. And in a sense, you know, we can know what God loves by what he hates. He, he tells us positively what he loves in his word, but he also tells us by way of implication what he loves. When he says he hates something, we know that he loves the opposite. In this passage, it says he hates human pride. That means he loves humility. It says he hates a lying tongue. He loves truth-telling. God, God loves it when people speak the truth in love. It says he hates the one who sows discord. And that must mean that he loves the one who is eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So we learn both what God hates and to an extent what God loves. We want to love what God loves and we want to hate what he hates. 
This is why we are wrestling with this passage this morning. We want to learn to run from some things and indeed even hate them. Hate them when we see them in ourselves. Hate them when we see them in the world. Hate them when we see them in our church. These sins. And love what God loves. There are two obvious sections, I think, in this passage. I, 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 I was originally going to just preach verses 16 through 19, but I felt like I needed to include 12 through 15 as well. So there's a 12 through 15. If you have the ESV, they're broken up in, in kind of sections. And they, verses 12 through 15 focus our attention on the actions of the worthless or wicked persons. And then verses 16 through 19, that's the famous seven things that God hates the Lord hates. And so we'll spend some time there. And there's a clue that ties these, well, there's a couple of clues that tie these two sections together. One's the body language. You see the body language all through the, both of those passages. But the big clue for me is the, uh, the sowing discord. He says it in, in verse 14 there and then in verse 19. So it's a major thing here. That's right at the heart of these passages. So it seems to me in the first passage, verses 12 through 15, he is naming the sinner and what he does and the consequences of what he does. Verse 15. And the second passage, verses 16 through 19, focus on the sin itself. And these two passages together comprise the key ingredients to discord among the brothers. These are the sins that sow strife and discord. We'll follow that layout for these verses. First, focusing on the worthless fellow, wicked fellow, what he does, where his actions lead, and then what God hates. So we need to think a bit about the word worthless and wicked. What does he mean when he calls us, when he calls this person worthless and wicked? What does the Bible mean? You know that old line from um, uh, Forrest Gump, stupid is what stupid does, sir. Do you remember that? Anyone remember? That's an old movie now, right? That's back when Tom Hanks was a good actor. Um, <laughs> uh, stupid is what stupid does. I, I never really understood. I don't know what this says about me, but I never really understood what he meant by stupid is what stupid does. Uh, but that's what came to mind as I was thinking through this passage. Worthless is what worth, worthless does. Wicked is what wicked does. The person is worthless in the sense that he, the things he does does not bring value. They, they, they don't bring worth. They don't add value. They don't bring God glory. They don't benefit other Christians. They don't benefit even himself. It's worthless. So, you know, most today, most smartphones are waterproof, but in the early days of smartphones, if you were to drop one in water, it'd be toast, right? You know what I mean? You do the rice thing, but it never really worked so you drop this cell phone. You know, a cell phone is supposed to communicate. You're supposed to be able to text. It adds value, right? You can, you can text. You can, you, can, you can do stuff on it. You can talk to people with it. But when you drop it in water, it no longer does any of those things. There's no benefit, right? It, it stops bringing the benefit that it's supposed to bring. And therefore, that thing is it's just a piece of like glass and aluminum then, right? Worthless. Like it does not bring value anymore. And I think that's the same sense in which he is calling the person worthless. He brings no benefit. He doesn't serve his intended purpose anymore. We are meant to do stuff. We are meant to be things. But when we act in the way that God hates, we bring no glory to God, no benefit to others, and no help to ourselves. So worthless equals no profit. 
no benefit, no value. And the same, same goes for wicked, except it's maybe the other side of it. Harm. We don't, we don't bring value anymore. We're worthless. And we bring harm. We're wicked. When we forsake what God loves, which is holiness and goodness, love, and we give ourselves to what he hates, which is evil, we cause harm. We cause great harm to others, to ourselves, to our churches. We cause harm. So worthless and wicked is what worthless and wicked does. Do you follow? So let's consider together the worthless and wicked ways. The ways that bring no value and bring harm. First, the wicked man goes about with crooked speech. So he doesn't use like wholesome speech that goes straight, like right to the truth. But his speech is crooked or deceitful, speech that causes harm to others. We should be unwholesome, unedifying, truth that doesn't like bring grace to the hearers. We should think of categories like slander and gossip and lying. Any speech that is loaded not with wholesome goodness that brings blessing to the hearers, but is like acid, you know, corrupting, destroying, hurting. The wicked man winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. And I, th- I think that's easy to get. Like, this, that paints a picture that you can see, right? You know what I mean? We, we know what it's like. We can, we can be like that. It's, it, it's, it's a life rife with deception, and faction building and scheming and accusing. Uh, the, the scheming and faction building. The winking, winking of the eye. The signaling with the feet. Scheming. And, and the one who points with his fingers. He loves to accuse. He loves to find fault. And his heart, right? I mean, this isn't just outward, right? It's his heart. His heart is scheming. And not scheming like how he could thoughtfully bless other people. Some people scheme like that, right? Like, what can I do that would really bless this person? But this is the kind of scheming that's the opposite of that. How can I exalt myself and tear them down? And so discord. So he's not interested in the body of Christ loving one another or dying for one another or serving one another or being the fragrance of Christ together. Now, he cares for himself. Maybe he wants more power, more prestige, some esteem, a louder voice. He feels slighted. He feels envious. And so he will use his gifts and his abilities and his skills and his body and his heart, not for their intended purposes, but instead to sow discord. And friends, the the somber thing here is that the church in America, the churches all over, are full of such people. Good, pious Christians on the outside, they look good on the surface, but they're not about the unity of the body of Christ. They're about their own supposed gain. And churches are ripped apart by such people. Now we're going to come back to the specific sins, okay, what, what wicked and worthless does, especially as we look at verses 16 through 19. But we should not miss what verse 15 teaches us because it's really, really heavy. Okay, look at verse 15 with me. It says, therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. And I think every word there needs its due. You need to think about every word. Therefore means that what tragically happens to him is a direct result of his actions. Calamity means utter disaster. That's what the word means. 
suddenly and in a moment gives us the idea that this judgment comes in a, in a, in a, at a time and in a sense in which it's too late for repentance. And broken beyond healing, likewise, means that they are totally done for. There is no recovery from this calamity. This is a punishment that is without end or recovery. Remember what I said a moment ago. God destroys what God hates. And I think that's what verse 15 teaches us and why we should take the the time to think about what God hates and take it very seriously. We don't want to be what God hates or to be what God hates or to do what God hates or to love what God hates. God brings judgment on what he hates. He pours out his wrath on what he hates. And we don't want to be that. You know, no one talks about hell or eternal judgment anymore, but we need to talk about it. We need to talk about it. Jesus talked about it a lot. We need to talk about it. This is not a game that we play. Sin is not a game that we can play around with. Just put it away when we're done with it. Take it out, wield it, not care. Sin leads to death. That's what the Bible teaches. That's a reference to hell. Eternal destruction, being broken beyond healing. God destroys what he hates. Now, there is some really, really sweet and good news for us in that. And we're going to come to that in due time. But I want you to stay with me and I want you to have that heavy warning in your mind as we turn to the very specific things that God hates, okay? So with this, the heaviness of that calamity that will come upon him suddenly and he'll be broken beyond healing. Let's go to verses 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates. I'm going to read it again. The seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So first, haughty eyes. That's just another way of describing pride. God hates pride. He hates it when humans think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. He hates it when we consider ourselves higher than others. God hates it when we boast in our supposed goodness or our righteousness. God hates human pride. God, I wish we would get this. I'm going to say it a bunch of times. God hates human pride. The scriptures are full of sayings like that. I'll just read a few. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to God. Proverbs 16.18 says, Pride comes before destruction. 1 Peter 5.5 and James 4.6 both say the same thing. God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He hates pride, friends. Hates it. Human pride is an abomination to God. He opposes proud people. Pride is not a respectable sin, as some have called it. It is not a respectable sin. It leads to destruction. It leads to hell. How many people will suffer eternally because their pride kept them from Christ? It leads to destruction. Let's keep going. God hates a lying tongue. You know, Jesus said, what did Jesus say about truth? He said, I am the truth, right? 
Lies and God are opposites. Satan is the father of lies. God is truth. Christ is truth. Every time we tell a lie, we speak in a way that is opposite to God. We speak in a way that God hates. I want you to feel that for a moment. Every time you tell a lie, you speak in such a way that God hates. God hates lying. And he hates hands that shed innocent blood. That means that God hates injustice. And he hates the hands that do injustice. He hates it when we harm someone undeservedly. God loves justice. Justice comes from God. God hates injustice. He hates oppression. He hates it when we bring harm to someone who doesn't deserve that harm. The next one is a heart that devises wicked plans. So we just dig intrigue, right? People love intrigue. Watch Netflix. That's what it's all about. We love intrigue. We love, we love drama. We love scheming. Not so with God. God detests hearts that devise wicked plans. We sit around thinking about how, when we sit around thinking about how we can really own that guy, right? How, how we can really get back at them. How, how, maybe, maybe I could just drop this word at the right time and, and say this to so-and-so, you know, kind of under the radar, just so that they'll think of him in such a way. God hates that. We don't want to be, even in our hearts, what God hates. Scheming is what God hates. And the next one is feet that make haste to run to evil. It's a picture of a person who's quick to do what's wrong, slow to do what's right. His first impulse is revenge, harm, gossip, slander, something evil. Feet that want to go there. That's the impulse, and God hates that impulse. And then the next one, it's similar to a lying tongue. God hates a false witness who breathes out lies. That's someone who cooperates in leveling a false accusation against someone. Someone who happily joins the faction, as it were. And of course, as with all dishonesty, it can be done subtly with cleverness. It might not, I don't, I don't think we do anything out, outrageously obvious, right? This, this, this is where we have to be really careful. You know, you hear something, you think, well, I don't do that outrageously obvious. I do it subtly. <laughs> It's not better. It's normally not the way we do it. We're good at framing facts. You know, this is how we do it. We frame facts. The world is full of framing, okay? You take a certain set of facts and you can frame it in such a way and your intent is deceived. You might use all true words. You might say true statements. Every single statement might be true, but you frame it in such a way that your intent is to deceive. God hates that. And we're good at it. That's what's scary. We're screaming good at that. Christians of all people on the planet need never to do that. Because we, have, we, we, we serve a God who loves truth. We can be good at playing with words. We don't want to be good with that. We must love the truth and speak the truth. And you know what? Let the chips fall as they may. Just speak the truth. Now note with me that this proverb seems to cross the line at two different places, okay? A line for us, anyway. 
something we don't like to say. It doesn't merely say that he hates lying. It actually says he hates the one who is lying. It doesn't merely say he hates discord. It says he hates the one who sows discord. And that ought to be really heavy. It was for me as I read this, I don't want to be the object of God's hate. The seventh one kind of brings this thing full circle. God hates the one who sows discord among the brothers. Uh, You know, he uses the word brothers because brothers have every reason to be united, right? I mean, they're brothers. They're brothers. They, They have every reason to be one, to be united. But this wicked fellow comes with the aim of bringing disunity where there should be unity. And his aim is to divide and to sow discord and to faction people. And God hates it when someone sows discord like that. He hates the divisive spirit. He hates the divisive spirit in us. And if you think of it, all the sins that are listed here are divisive. Every bit of it. In fact, you know, if this was like a cooking show and we were, you know, the the dish we were making was discord a la carte, everything would be right there, right? You just stir in a cup of pride, a couple of tablespoons of crooked speech, half cup of evil motives, dash of injustice, and bake it. And out comes this bitter, sickening cake of discord among brothers. I can't think of an instance of discord among Christians, of Christian disunity, in my experience or the ones that I have known about or heard about, in which these ingredients were not present. On one side or on both. And we live in a time, we live in a time when the church is more divided. Maybe we've always struggled with this, but it seems to me in my 25 years of ministry that it's more divided now, the church at large, than it has ever been. The church in America, I mean. I listen to podcast after podcast about how COVID has divided us and how this has divided us, how politics or this election has divided us, political views have divided us. And I always think the same thing. COVID hasn't divided us. Politics haven't divided us. Trump, Biden, they haven't divided us. It is sin that divides. We just wrap it around something like COVID. COVID hasn't split any churches that I'm aware of. A lot of churches split during COVID. I don't know one that split because of COVID. Sin is what split so many churches during COVID. Now note with me the language of the body that he uses in all of this passage, okay? All the passage uses body language, okay? He specifically names heart, eyes, tongue, feet, hands, fingers. It's all body language, right? The body of sin, if you will. And I want to use it that way because I want to lead us to something. I want us to bring our attention to a reality that this language kind of evokes. It evoked it in me as I was thinking this through. Remember, God destroys what God hates. God will destroy this body of sin. It will be broken beyond healing. Again, verse 15. This body of sin will be destroyed. That's the heavy warning I've wanted you to keep in mind as we've walked through this, considered the particulars. And as I said, there's something, there's some really sweet news that's connected with that reality. And that's where I want to go now. So if you have your Bibles open, why don't you flip over, put your finger there, we'll come back, but go to Romans chapter 6 with me. Romans 6, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. 
says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that those of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. You know why Jesus went to the cross, friends? Christ died on the cross to destroy what God hates and save those whom he loves. He died to destroy the body of sin. He died to destroy haughty eyes and lying tongues and hands that shed innocent blood and hearts that devise evil plans and feet that hastily run to evil and the sowing of discord among brothers. Jesus died for that. God hates those things. And God loves you. And so God sent Christ to destroy those things in you and give you life in him. And the freedom and the power to do what he loves. Christians are dead to those seven deadly sins and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Isn't that good? The body of sin, it's dead. We are alive in Christ. You are free from those sins, friend. Free to do what God loves if you're in Christ. And again, you can see what God loves just by thinking about the opposites of these things. Let's do it again. God hates pride. He loves humility. He loves it when we humble ourselves before him. God hates lying. God loves the truth. God hates injustice. He hates it. He hates the harming of the innocent. God loves justice. God hates discord. God loves unity. If this were a cooking show and the dish was Unity, a la carte, all the ingredients implied by the opposites are right here, right? Pour in lots of humility, a pound of straight speech, several cups of truth-telling, and justice, and feet that are quick to run to what is good, quick to assume the best in others. Mix in a heart that devises good plans, that schemes about how to outdo one another in love, Pour in pounds of sowing unity among brethren. Just mix it all together. 
Mix all the things that God loves, and you know what you'll get? A delicious, scrumptious dish of unity. Oh, that's the cake I want to eat. I want to eat it and eat it. I want to get fat on that cake. The sweet love of God. So, brothers and sisters, we must, we must hate what God hates, and we must love what God loves. If you're hearing this and, all, and you're thinking, man, I, I really struggle with pride or with lying or with gossip, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I hope you will do, and I'll pray you will not do. There's something here I don't want you to do, something here I want you to do, and I'll just start with what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to feel like condemned in your sin. I don't want you to feel that. I want you to feel the heaviness here, but I don't want you to feel condemned. You know why? Because Christ took your condemnation. He bore your iniquities. And what he did on the cross was absolutely sufficient. Christ was condemned so that you would not be. And I hope you will not feel condemned this morning. You need to look to the cross of Christ, where Christ bore our condemnation in our place. He died for my pride. He died for my lying. He died for the impulse that has been resident in my heart since birth to harm people and cause discord. He died for my scheming. So I hope you will not feel condemned. Some things I hope you will do, though. I hope you will hate these things. I hope you will turn to Christ in these things. I hope you will be quick to call these things out when you see them, to caution your heart against them when you see them, and make war on these things in your own heart. Make war. Not play, make war. Again, the stakes are high. Make war on these sins. When pride, this desire to exalt ourselves over others, rears its ugly head, and it does so often. You know what you need to do? You need to stab it in the head with the gospel. The gospel, the work of Christ, it utterly destroys pride. Pride and being captured by the gospel. Water and oil, they don't go together. You cannot be proud with your confidence in Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1. I mean, it's another long passage, but I'm going to read it. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 through 31. And I, I want you to read this in light of what Paul is doing with it, okay? This, the Apostle Paul teaching a church that was heavily divided by all kinds of different reasons, okay? And, and the way that he addresses pride, the way that he stabs the ugly head of pride is, the, is with the, the dagger of the gospel. So he says, this is 1 Corinthians 1, 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We ought to be the most boastful people in the world. Just never boasting about ourselves and always boasting about Jesus. The gospel kills our pride. Just like it kills our lying and our divisiveness, God destroys what God hates. And on the cross, he killed the old body of sin in us. All those who believe in Christ, 
who trust in Christ. So this morning, I invite you, friends, to turn to Jesus Christ and his gospel so that he might have his way in you and in your heart and in me, in our church. May we be a people who love what God loves and hates what God hates. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning eager, eager to be shaped by you and by your word. And I pray, Father, that there'd be no resistance to it. We would just bow our heads in humility before you and let your word do its work. I pray that you will convict where conviction needs to be. And Lord, that you would lead us not into condemnation, but that you would lead us to the grace of God in Christ where we can find joy and forgiveness and life. I pray this for your glory and for our good. And in Jesus' name, amen.